This podcast is brought to you by MedTech Innovation News, the publication for professionals working in the UK and Ireland's medical device industry. Subscribe now at medtechnews.com. Hello and welcome to this episode of the MedTalk podcast, the podcast that discusses the latest news and issues in life sciences. I'm Ian Bolland, the editor of MedTech Innovation News. On this episode, I'm joined by Heather Reed Harper, a senior marketing manager from Bettman Coulter, as we discuss the company's technological developments during the COVID-19 pandemic, including its testing assays. We also discuss how testing can be used alongside the vaccination program as the UK and the rest of the Western world tries to emerge from lockdown. First of all, thank you very, very much for uh, agreeing to take part. Um, I'm going to start with a very broad question, if you don't mind, and, and that's about uh, Batman Coulter's role in technologies and fighting COVID-19, because obviously you've you've got a uh, a, a great deal of pedigree in, in, uh, in diagnostics itself, but your precise role in COVID-19, can you give us a little bit of insight into that? Certainly, yeah. So... Um... Batman Coulter has really been laser focused on developing um, serology assays of the highest level of quality. Um, but, you know, in this pandemic and the way it's come about so quickly, we weren't expecting it um, back in, in 2019. So we've had to build a lot of the, uh, the assays that we've got from the ground up. Um, and in that um, you know, in developing those assays, we needed to make sure that we, the development provided clinical value um, in the assays that we that we chose. So let's discuss really serology assays. So early on in our design goals um, for the assays for um, COVID-19, um, uh, we really did consider the many situations that um, antibodies testing could be useful. We all know that PCR is the key in diagnosing patients that are infected um, and then could therefore spread the disease to others. But there is also a key role of antibody testing. So antibodies for SARS-CoV-2 can provide detail on the prevalence of the disease in a broad population. They can identify patients that may be suitable to donate convalescent plasma. Um, as we've seen, that is a, a valuable tool in treating very ill patients with COVID-19. But also these antibody assays now, as we move forward into vaccine programs, et cetera, are going to be invaluable in monitoring the immune response um, and exposure to the disease. Um, so when I move forward, um, we need assays that cover the typical stages of an immune response to a disease. So Beckman Coulter has developed, um, you know, an IgG assay and an IgM assay. We decided to do that separately because by being able to measure IgG and IgM as an individual test, we can actually provide greater clinical clarity um, for patient assessment compared to just a single IgG or what we would call a combined or total IgG or IgM. Um, so when we follow those principles of infection, um, utilizing both the IgG and IgM, we can better understand the immunity status and the stage of infection to, in an individual. 
Um, we all understand that IgG is the the antibody necessary for immunity and has the ability to impact, you know, reduce the impact of further infection. But let's take, for example, if we're talking about, you know, immunity uh, in a patient using a serology assay, we all know a typical response would be that IgM would rise first um, and is the body's first line of defense, which is why we wanted to provide an IgM assay. And then IgG, um, provides a more sustained response. So knowing that IgM typically rises um, in infection around two to 14 days, and then IgG some 14 to 20 days later, there is the opportunity to utilize both of these assays um, to provide a picture on the stage of disease. So in other words, what I'm saying is IgM alone could be an indicator of early infection, where you see IgG and IgM together um, it may indicate a later period of time since exposure, but yet it's not, you know, infection could still be prevalent. Um, and then when the IgM declines, um, by measuring the IgG, we might, you know, we should, as we learn more, understand that, yes, that person has been exposed previously, um, but they may also have been what we call asymptomatic, therefore showed no signs of disease, but may still have antibodies to um, SARS-CoV-2. So that's really the role that we're playing is understanding, you know, the, the way the disease progresses and delivering tools um, to help clinicians understand the various stages of the disease. I will just add to that with the role of Beckman Coulter's role in COVID that we are in next month going to be launching um, an antigen assay. Now, I know we were talking about antibodies today, but um, anti, an antigen assay is actually another tool which helps to uh, diagnose disease alongside PCR. Um, we will be launching a laboratory-based assay, um, and this might bring some advantages over what we see in the news all the time of point-of-care or lateral flow tests, um, because they're very manual, um, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of you know, individual uh, processes that are needed to test an, a single patient. Whereas, you know, by having laboratory-based antigen testing, you know, it, it gives us that ability to do mass testing faster because we know PCR can sometimes take, you know, three hours to deliver a result. Um, and, you know, it may help in the logistics rather than having to get, you know, all the people in one place, the, the swabs can be sent to a laboratory and as we know, you know, we have Bettman Coulter analyzers across the country in NHS laboratories, and you know, we should be utilizing them again to help us in these mass testing programs. That's um, sorry, that that's a great comprehensive answer to um, uh, to, to what you offer there. Um, but um, I think this actually leads nicely, given that you mentioned the antigen, it leads nicely into this uh, other question that I've got in terms of strategy for. Um, uh, for com uh, for combating the disease uh, altogether, because I think a layperson would actually just, if they were just briefly following the news o over the past year or so, they, they would have started off with testing for the virus, then testing for people who may have had the virus, and now we're up to vaccine. But I, th I think it's important to um, uh, to touch upon that all of these have got to be used 
basically in in tandem in order for there to be an effective strategy in order to, to suppress the virus and help uh, help everybody get back to normal yeah absolutely and i think that's you know a situation we're going to be in for a little while i mean we have in you know in the uk we've got these these mass testing laboratories they've got you know super capacity for pcr um but again it is a central point um and we've got to get the samples to it but pcr is ultimately the gold standard we know this um in some place you know there are discussions going on that pcr might be too sensitive um in by nature and the antigen testing um gives us that ability to still be looking for those asymptomatic patients and i think it's the asymptomatic patients that you know we need to be able to identify antibodies are going to play more of a role as we move into vaccine um we did you know at the beginning of this pandemic antibodies were important um and you know do they they give you know we still uh, there is a level of protection but science still needs to continue on to understand how long that level of protection will occur but by having all of these tools by pcr which by nature has its own uh position in in this pandemic antigens you know they're faster they're quicker to to deliver results um and you know brings another layer of the diagnosis in in being able to test greater populate you know larger populations moving forward and then as i say the antibody while you've got these tools we were talking about igg and igm and you know the different stages of the immune response um even with vaccine we're still going to have to be in this position of isolation because as we say you may be vaccinated but there are people out there that are not vaccinated and we still have that potential to spread covid-19 until you know we get this sort of um herd immunity be it through vaccine be it through exposure so yeah they all play a vital role uh in in this in this this pandemic yeah um I think um given the the nature of what we've discussed in terms of everything's so intertwined I I can imagine that there's a lot of um um a lot of a lot of dialogue between different organizations as well I'm not asking you to name names here but how closely are you working with other organizations um what be that in testing or be that in in in, uh, in vaccination to to make sure that everyone's working in perfect harmony in uh, in, in, an, in an effort to uh get us back to normal as soon as possible that is a great question and it is you know we're all learning so fast in these situations you know we're seeing things changing every day so we do work in collaboration with um you know vaccine companies to ensure that the assay the assays that we deliver can you know test the appropriate response that is needed um we have a partner company uh from Beckman Cortical Cepheid which is delivering PCR testing so obviously you know we're working in conjunction with them around um you know uh, the access to these the the availability of of the tests so you know we, there's a lot of sort of work and being able to understand that we can deliver what is needed on time and and there is another importance like you said in in the capacity of being able to provide tests because you know as we move forward we've got to sort of understand the strategies that are being rolled out by the government you know perhaps we can talk even down that vaccine we're into this vaccine situation now um it's not necessarily decided um as to what point 
um, you, we need to start testing to understand the immune response to the vaccine. I mean, maybe I talk here in that in let's talk vaccine if you're if you're okay. Um, yeah, absolutely. It's very much on the mind of people. Yeah. Um, and we see in the news, and I think everybody that doesn't necessarily understand immune responses and vaccines, etc., are seeing on the news that we're talking about vaccine, the percentage of effectiveness of a vaccine. You're hearing percentages. Thank you. I can't say that at the moment. Um, so you're you're hearing percentages you're hearing 97% you're hearing 75% you know you're hearing all of this in the news that we that we see um and obviously for them to be you know for vaccine companies to be able to deliver that percentage of effectiveness that the vaccine will um provide then they will have been looking at uh blood samples from patients within their trials so what they will have done will have taken a baseline blood sample so understand the level of antibodies that that patient has had prior to vaccine um, and then what they will have done is they will have taken a blood sample um, a few weeks later um, and they will basically be looking to see um, if the antibodies um, in that patient have increased from the baseline um, to um, a protective level, we'll, we'll call it a protective level. Um, and that's where you'll see those percentages coming from. Now, in my opinion, um, and this purely is my opinion, it's probably not necessarily to determine a baseline in the whole population, because the vaccine trials have kind of already demonstrated that general efficacy, I can't say it today, the, you know, the <laughs> effectiveness of the, of the vaccine. Um, and logistically, would it be feasible to be baselining every patient prior to vaccine? Probably not. But what we do need to understand as we move forward is how long the immunity for a vaccine is going to last. Um, and as I've said, the immune response to, you know, in an individual can be different you know, not everybody's following the same path. So, you know, it may be that the vaccine may protect some more than others or longer periods of time than others. So um, this is where I'm saying that serology assays, and we're talking, you know, our Beckman call to access SARS-CoV IgG2, um, has this potential to play a vital role um, in, in understanding this length of immunity. So perhaps we could look at ideal scenarios. So let's take hep B surface antigen. Okay, now hepatitis B, um, there is a, a vaccine to hepatitis B. And in those vaccine programs, um, what is done is it's advisable to vaccinate the patient and then two to three weeks later, check for the antibodies, the seroconversion. So, you know, the antibody response. And if these are found to be above a certain threshold, um, then, you know, the patient has um, antibodies. So if we take that in the same way for this SARS-CoV-2, say we do look at antibodies maybe two, three weeks later, um, then, you know, we can conceive that the vaccine provides some level of protection. But how I, you know, again, in my own words, I, in my own opinion, I feel that perhaps this should be followed up three to six months later to understand if those antibody levels remain high and if they're high enough to protect from 
reinfection. So that's what I'm saying. What is important for companies um, and, you know, in discussions with healthcare, that we have the capacity to be able to do that and that these come that we as a company can ramp up that capacity. So potentially, if antibody testing is rolled out to understand the longevity of protection, then we're going to need capacity in the realms we're seeing for PCR testing. So thousands um, of tests. And, you know, will we be testing at three months, six months or 12 months? Will there need to be a booster vaccine at some point? We, you know, we don't know this yet because we're very early on in those programs. But I can say that, you know, Beckman, we've got the capacity to ramp up the supply of the assays should the demand spike. So, you know, that was probably a very long description, but I think it's good to understand, you know, how we need to work together with, you know, the healthcare system um, and that the companies need to understand um, the thought process so that we can respond quickly and be there to support ultimately, uh, you know, it's the patient, it's, it's the people that, that are having these vaccines and they want to understand their number. Yeah, you might have mentioned that it's a it's a long-winded description, but I think the more comprehensive in this kind of situation, the better. Uh, but you've mentioned the uh, the time scale there that you had with the uh, hepatitis B vaccines, where it came to you test for antibodies two three two three weeks later, and it's a little bit unknown about when we're going to be uh, antibody testing people who have been vaccinated for SARS CoV two. What I would um, suggest is that. If, if there is this 12-week window between jab one and jab two that we're seeing rolled out with both Pfizer and AstraZeneca in the UK, it's um, are you expecting a, a three-month window at the very least of between when a patient's had a vaccine and when they have an antibody test? Yeah, so, you know, it's hard to know what the program's going to look like. So, again, it's kind of the opinion as to where we are. There's a lot of publications, there's a lot of peer review papers, etc. So we know where a person has um, developed a natural immune response, that the antibodies are still at, I will call it a protective level, some five months later. So I think the window, as you, you know, is where we're saying is around that five months is what we need to understand as as a community you know where do we go from that period of time now we know that the vaccine companies will be testing the populations that the vaccine trial was done on but as i've indicated you know immune response is individual um and so i think there is that benefit around you know maybe three months we say as we know, the second vaccine is 12 weeks. So in a three to five month time window, I think it might be pertinent to be thinking not necessarily the whole population, but a selection of the population to give us some sort of, you know, percentages of those that have raised antibodies to to the vaccine. I mean, we've seen a lot of epidemiological studies um, that you know, have been used to understand how long antibodies last, we need to kind of take that forward in the vaccine type population as well, because, you know, maybe, as I've said, and I say again, immune response is an individual thing. Okay, um, we've talked about capacity a lot. So I'm, uh, I'm going to um, uh, rewind a little bit back to, uh, to March of last year, because you talked about the need for, there's going to be a need for increased antibody 
testing capacity uh, down the line. But when the pandemic first broke out, I think there was actually a case. I think Matt Hancock may may have uh, suggested that there, there wasn't much lab capacity in the UK for PCR testing to actually, you know, find out if anyone had the disease or not. Um, I actually thought. He, he, I think he mentioned that he the country has built up a diagnostics industry from scratch, and I just thought that was a, I thought that was a bit of a sideswipe, to be perfectly honest. But uh, because I think the diagnostics industry has been there, it's just a case of, you know, the, the capacity probably wasn't. I mean, what were your thoughts on that when you heard it at the time? I was a little bit. Um... Shocked, I think, from that comment exactly that the di- you know the diagnostic industry has w- didn't have that capacity and wasn't available to do it. I mean, as I say, you know, every laboratory, uh, sorry, every hospital in the UK has a laboratory. It has a pathology department. It has um, analyzers that are there for testing, you know, thyroid function, um, kidney function. Uh, you know, clinical chemistry and immunoassays out there and there's full capacity and we're doing a lot of testing now. So, okay, when it comes to PCR, I think, you know, as we said, they they committed, the government was committed, I think, to 300,000 PCR tests a day. So they needed to do it quickly. I can't necessarily speak for PCR because, um, you know, I'm talking in the uh, immunoassay type section of of the diagnostic industry but there are immunoassay analyzers out there they've got the capacity to do the testing um, and the laboratories are waiting and available to do it we have a very very strong um you know pathology uh network across the uk and you know my colleagues in that industry deserve everything um, and all the hard work that they put in. So, uh, you know, I was, as I say, um, not a necessarily um, a good thing, but, you know, the pathology networks are there and they should be utilised. Yeah, it was actually the uh, the subject of my first editor's letter when I, when I took over as, uh, when I took over MedTech Innovation News because I thought it was a little bit unfair and I thought uh, there was a case that, you know, uh, the diagnostics industry deserves a tremendous amount of praise for the way it's reacted to it, and there's, there has always been industry in the UK. It was just a case of, yeah, uh, getting getting the ball rolling. They knew what they had to do, uh, and, and as soon as they got instructions, I think I think they responded magnificently. But that's just my opinion. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's my opinion too. You know, we've got a great industry out there. We've got those laboratories that can deliver, and certainly when it comes to antibody testing, you know, um, we've got all of the phlebotomists out there, you know, we, we can do this. Yeah, I mean, I, I think we can just uh, follow follow on from that with one final question, if I may. It's a case of um, when you've been developing this technology for, um, for COVID-19 testing, has this technology been used in any other area before in ter- and it's now being repurposed for the, you know, the predicament that we currently find ourselves in? So, yeah, I mean, these assays use the basic principle um, of a, an immunoassay. So we have the the backbones, okay? Um, so our assay works with um, antibody pairs. Um, it's, it's bound to a solid phase so that, you know, we can um, 
detect the the antigen in the you know in the blood and we have the antibodies that do that lock and key um so we we ba we've taken it from the, the the actual technology of the assay that we use on our instruments every day for all of those tests as i say fertility thyroid etc but what we've done is absolutely carefully um considered uh the antibody pair that we need to make um, the assays valuable, as I've said, to, in clinical practice. So SARS-CoV-2, okay, um, it is, it's a coronavirus, um, and it, it is sort of made up of four different types of proteins. So we have the, we have the, the membrane protein, the envelope, the nucleocapsid, and the spike. Okay, now, I, I don't know if everybody listening to this will necessarily have heard of the differences, but we as a company ensured that we focused on the spike protein. So let me just elaborate a little bit, because it is antibody sex selection that is really, really important, not necessarily the technology that delivers, but the antibody. So the spike protein is the major surface protein of coronavirus, and it is the spike protein that mediates entry to the host cell. So there is something called a receptor binding domain on this spike protein, okay? Um, and this is the, the area that, that does that, um, uh, allows that entry into the human cell by actually um, binding to what we know as the angiotensin converting enzyme 2 or ACE2, which people may be very familiar with or may not be. But effectively, the receptor binding domain of the spike protein um, binds to this ACE2 receptor, and that's how it enters the cell. And once it's in the cell, the viral membrane and the human cell membrane freeze, and then the genome, which we hear talked about a lot of the virus, enters a human cell, and that's when infection begins. So it's important for us, okay, um, because a lot of studies have indicated that this receptor binding domain of the spike protein is key in the understanding of the immune response to the virus because studies have shown that antibodies directed against this receptor binding domain okay have the ability to be neutralizing and when i say neutralizing what i'm actually saying is protective so they will neutralize the SARS-CoV-2 infection so that's more the point when we're talking about we may have the technology so we've got the solid phases that we need to bind our antibodies to in the assay to detect we've got the light sources it's all standard technology what is really important here is that we look and we understand the disease, the progression of the disease, how the body will react to protect itself against the disease, and then deliver tests that can give us those answers. Um, and so that's the real um, importance when it comes to development. Okay. I mean, I've got one little follow-up point, though, in, in the sense of how have you... How are you able to react in the new variants that are being discovered? Then is it a case of um, is it a case of using these antibody tests against such patients? Or I mean, I'm, I'm leaving this to you. You're you're the expert here. 
Well, yeah, I mean, we hear about mutations all the time, don't we? So we've got what, what how many have we got now? I mean, we hear about the Kent, the Kent, uh, mutation and they're saying that that may be the most prevalent we hear about the the one from brazil etc etc so it all depends on really on you know what part of the protein that mutation is is um actually deleting um and you know we all know that so it is kind of levels of detail um in assay design i can't necessarily talk about in this interview but yes it is important and we are constantly um looking at these mutations, looking at the antibody assays, making sure that they can do it. Um, so far, the receptor binding domain hasn't been affected um, in uh, some of those, but it is obviously an ongoing science. And I'm not going to science, say science needs to catch up, but science is moving at an incredible pace um, to make sure that you know we deliver everything that we need and people feel confident in the results that they gain. Okay. Well, Heather, thank you very, very much for your time. Uh, that has been a very insightful and educational listen from my point of view, and I hope the listeners uh, just find it as educational as I did. Thank you very much. It has been a pleasure. Thanks once again to Heather Reed Harper from Bettman Coulter. Thanks to you as well for listening to the MedTalk podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and SoundCloud. Until the next time, goodbye. Goodbye.